Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. And so welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Today, a new guest, a new story, a new chapter. Dun, dun, dun. Today, we have with us Georgie Williams. Hi, Georgie. Hi, Russell. How are you doing? That's the biggest gap in the world between my introduction and your response. So I'm guessing you must be way, away, away on the other side of the world. I'm in the south coast of the United Kingdom. Where are you? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm not too far up the road. I'm actually in East London at the moment. Right. See, it's always the way. Technology is marvellous, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a delight to have you um, on board this podcast today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, we actually chatted because um, we're taking part in the conference together in a few weeks' time. And uh, you're going to be a, a fantastic keynote speaker. And um, I thought it'd be great to have a conversation uh, for my audience and chat a bit about resilience. So um, tell us, I mean, how would you describe what it is you do? Okay, so I am a specialist in gender and sexuality, um, which is quite broad. Um, but to get more specific, I look at uh, gender and sexuality based identity variants and diversity, predominantly um, in uh, decolonial contexts, so from a transnational perspective. Um, in kind of more layman's terms, what that means is that I'm looking at how gender and sexuality varies in different communities and cultures around the world um, and how the West's influence on those communities and cultures has shaped those identities or erased some of them. Um, so I, sorry. I was going to say, I'm, uh, it absolutely sounds fascinating and it's one of those things, but why should we care about something like that? <laughs> I mean, why shouldn't we? Um, gender and sexuality plays such an integral role in all of our lives. Um, our dynamics, our relationships are so often based around our gendered perceptions of one another, um, sexual relationships, non-sexual relationships, um, and, and the roles assigned to us socially. Uh, gender in particular is everywhere. Um, and in understanding how gender varies and sexuality varies, we can understand miscommunications between communities and cultures based on a mistranslation or a misalignment of norms and practices. And if we understand them, that inclusivity is uh, a means through which to create productivity, um, create 
symbiosis and, and communication within different communities. Um, it is understanding and gender and sexuality is about communication and communication benefits all of us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I get it, but some people out there aren't that impressed by these things, are they? And for me, you know, what's quite interesting about this is diversity is all about innovation. It's about change. It's about the modern world. It's about moving forward together. And actually, a lot of people um, are sort of can be quite um, hamstrung by old ways of thinking, by old models of what makes an organization or what makes a relationship or what stands for communication. And I think this whole argument is interesting because obviously, it speaks very much to, um, we always call them Generation X, Y, Z, or whatever the next letter is going to be. But it, but it seems to be a feature of the modern generation, as it were, to, to find this important. And, and I just wonder, A, is that true? And B, why do you think that might be the case? A, it's definitely true. Um, the youngest generation, Generation Z, of which I am very tentatively just on the cusp of being a part of, um, <laughs> having been born in 95, um, oh. you know, our focus, it's, sorry, um, our focuses are very much on representation, visibility, um, and, and kind of community-based social change and praxis. Um, and I think that really matters because what that's doing is giving voices to individuals who were not afforded that opportunity in the first place. Um, so, so, for reference, I, so can I jump in for a second? Sorry to interrupt, I didn't really mean to, but why do you think this generation particularly engaged so much with this message? Predominantly it's because they can, because living in an age of globalization, uh, when we have access to internet, when we have access to virtual spaces and social media, there is an opportunity to congregate and find your community in a way that there wasn't before. So the young generation are being raised in a time where the conversations surrounding gender and sexuality are more open than they have been in kind of recorded history. Um, and that means that these individuals can have these discussions and talk about sensitive matters like their own gender identity and sexuality in confidence with other individuals who have gone through or are going through the same thing. So I think the younger generation, um, Generation Z, um, are very enthusiastic about the prospect of what social change can be enacted so that these communities don't just have to exist in fringe corners of the internet, but can actually be vis visible in non-virtual spaces as well. So that's fascinating. So if I uh, run an organization, um, so that's my, it, it, is a, it is a community. It's a community, yeah, XYZ, a corporation, PLC, whatever it might be. And what you're telling me is in, in the new world, actually, that you've got all these micro communities rushing across the organization, sort of swirling backwards and forwards and, and linking with other organizations. So there's a sort of, a, there's a mix between these fixed and very mobile communities going on. I mean, that sounds a recipe for chaos, but also a recipe for incredible innovation. <laughs> well, I think that it is that, um, you know, small communities, um, marginal groups have always existed and always found a way to kind of congregate uh, to a certain extent, but now it's much more feasible. Um, so it's not about these communities now suddenly existing when they didn't before, it's that they're just more visible. Um, and that is uh, exciting and that can be a cause for innovation and that can be a huge benefit to explore. Um, 
I am a academic with a background in what's called reflexive feminist methodology and a tenet of this methodological praxis is that uh, one has to consider personal standpoint uh, in all the work that they do. You have to consider yourself as a material in the work that you do. And the argument is that there is no objectivity, that because we are all a material in what we do, we all have our own personal biases, our own personal experiences that shape our perspectives. Mm. That influences the work that we do as well. And so one of the benefits of engaging with diversity in workplaces and organizations is that what you're doing is you're utilizing a brand new lens on the work that you're doing, which will shed light on potential blind spots that an individual uh, already in a positional role may have based on their own personal standpoint and their own previous experiences. And so I'm guessing that the, the tension you get within an organization is between an old establishment view, uh, maybe that's not the right way to express it, but a, a, um, an existing or a pre-existing cultural view and this new swarm almost of uh, innovation, new ideas, micro-communities, all that sort of, sort of thing. How, how does an organisation reconcile those two things, even if it needs to, if, for example? That's a very complex question, Russell. Uh, Thank you. I <laughs> I think I've got my pen ready so I can actually go out and um, sell this to an organization. <laughs> <laughs> I think now I'm, I'm no accredited organizational psychologist. My background was in organizational psychology, but from what I understand, it is this conflict between meritocratic practices, which are often actually exclusionary um, based on the fact that some individuals of uh, marginal backgrounds will struggle to rise through the ranks in the normative ways because they've been excluded particular experiences, benefits, uh, access to some education. And so uh, engaging with kind of uh, what would be considered non-normative and marginal communities within an organization, um, in order to do that, it is about diplomacy. It is about kind of democratizing processes um, not to say that everybody has an equal say, but that it's equitable, that individuals whose perspectives have not been considered more in the past are given more of a platform. Um, it's always important to consider not speaking for others or on behalf of others, but platforming voices that have not had an opportunity to speak for themselves in the past. So it's about considering who in an organisation has been overlooked as um, a component of the organization. Um, you know, when we talk about organizations, it's, it's so pertinent, consider them as organisms, right? Yeah. Where every piece has a part to play and it is a continually developing, uh, growing state, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so if there are areas that are being overlooked, we don't actually understand the impact that they have on those processes. And so that democratizing, that allowing individuals to collaborate on goals, projects, expected outcomes and deadlines um, isn't about just divvying up power. It's about saying, okay, you actually play a role in this entire process. So having feedback from you would actually benefit us with regards to streamlining this in future. Um, so it, which, it does us actually, more good. Well, well, it's interesting you say that because actually that's not a new idea. I mean, yeah, I think no. we used to call it empowerment 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> that was an, an old idea that went by the wayside. Um, 
uh, sorry, I'm joking there. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly drawn by this idea. Um, and, and the thing I've noticed is that you and I use language very differently. So I think it's often the, it's often the way that, um, and I think this is a, a, a generational thing by ge as generations roll through. I mean, we use language differently. And I wonder if there's almost a, a challenge here in the sort of, if we're going to do diplomacy, if we're going to work out a way of um, operating, so individuals and organizations can be increasingly resilient. We're going to have to figure out each other's language, aren't we? Because I wonder if you find my language all tedious and stale and, and you know, I'm listening to your language and thinking that's, that's really interesting because we use it in different ways. You know, using, you're using an evolved set of uh, terms which actually work for your, work in your culture and your micro community. And I just wonder how we bridge that gap because it tends to be my generation that's sort of in power and we're so, we seem to be the people who are looking down on your generation as bizarrely enough as the people who often parented them, which I always find hilarious, you know, and, and sitting there thinking, so how, how do we understand what this, these brilliant progeny of ours are actually talking about? So how, how, how do we bridge the gaps between us all? If indeed there are gaps, because I might just be uh, seeing something that doesn't exist. No, I agree. Um, I agree, Russell, especially as somebody who I've had the good fortune to engage in higher academia. Um, and so my lexicon is more academically focused, um, but it's also focused around language that developed through queer and feminist theory and academia from the 70s and 80s. Arguably, I'm part of an academic community which is regarded to be in its infancy. Um, you know, my, my undergraduate was in psychology and even then we considered that a very young science because it's only a couple of hundred years old. Yeah. Um, you know, matters of social inequality and injustice and the, and the social science behind that is even younger. Yeah. So the language is always evolving. Um, it doesn't stay the same. And I'm acutely aware of the fact that year upon year, I return to articles I've written with a desire to rephrase um, and revise the, the language that I used and, and how I applied it. Not necessarily because I think it was inappropriate, but it just wasn't specific enough and didn't convey what perhaps I needed it to. And so I think something that, that's kind of integral to ensuring that smooth communication is breaking down that language. Um, in a lot of the work that I do, I'm trying to uh, deconstruct my work in a way that makes it accessible to the layperson um, because my work is all about social change and social change doesn't happen if only the top five percent can understand what you're saying yeah so it is about having a dialogue where you challenge somebody and say right but what does that term mean in this context you know explain this to me and then trying to incorporate it yourself um, learning a language is not just about learning a foreign language it's about learning language across generations across communities across classes um, and language is a tool and having those tools equips us to be able to deconstruct concepts that would be otherwise alien and inaccessible to us so it's about having that dialogue and I'm half surprised you said that actually I was I, I was half surprising you half surprised that you didn't say language is all about evolution you know we need to learn uh, we need to let language move forwards we actually you know need to include people obviously so they can all be part of that but let's not hold language back because actually are we holding learning back because i think certainly in a corporate setting and if you think about some of the um you know sort of challenges we have there's there's an over bland blandest 
we get too beige with language. Sorry about that. I had to translate my own head there. <laughs> but you know what I mean? We, we end up with corporate speak, don't we? And, and, and academics have academic speak, and I get that. But we do end up with this vile sort of, um, you know, corporate mishmash. And I just wonder if we lose the magic in innovation when we sort of corrupt our own language and we... And we do, and rather than, uh, well, I don't want to use the word levelling up because that sounds very political with a small p at the moment, but do you know what I mean? It is that thing about if people have suffered because of a lack of, lack of education, rather than dumbing the message down, we should actually lift people up to be able to understand the message in the first place. Well, I think we should be careful with the language of dumbing down uh, because exactly. that implies uh, a lack of intellect on the part of anybody who has been prevented from accessing higher education. Um, but what I actually mean is that the language is evolving and the onus is on us to break that language down. Just because the words are new doesn't mean that we can't understand them uh, through synonyms and comparisons and examples. Um, the word used to describe my gender identity, which is genderqueer, um, that word was only coined in the year I was born, 1995, and with every subsequent year, there has been more language to evolve, particularly surrounding gender and sexuality. Mm. Um, but just because it's new language doesn't mean that it's inaccessible. It just means that we have to not use that language to gatekeep communities. Okay. We have to... Sorry, so can I leap in? Because it's, it's brilliant. So you've, got, you've come to the point now. So, so, let, so educate us then. So um, imagine we're working in a... a, a, a a place we want the guests to get the best from people. We want to understand words like this. We understand without getting to the politics of gender for the minute. Just just understand the various labels. So gender queer, clear, queer. We hear gender fluid. We hear non-binary. You mentioned multi-binary. I think earlier. Uh, I might have misheard that actually. Um, but but take us through some of these things and 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 let's suspend our political judgment on this with a small p and actually just understand where where you're coming from. Okay, so. Uh, this language is English-based, and it's important to acknowledge that there are many, many examples, uh, well, many different words for, for the examples I'm about to give all around the world, um, I believe. For what we in the postmodern Anglophone West would consider transgender, there are 26 different words, at least, all around the world. Um, and obviously the parameters with which we define those are subjective as well, because maleness and femaleness are also culturally subjective. But I won't get too much into that. Uh, it's just an important disclaimer. Um, so binary oh, That's genders, a whole other podcast, that one. So it, but it, that's my, that's it. my whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, but um, binary genders are the two genders that most of us in the West are familiar with. So that's male and female, right? Any other gender outside of that is a non-binary gender, right? Um, it is something that, that is completely abstracted from that binary. And non-binary is an umbrella term. Some people will just describe themselves using that term. Um, but it can be more specific than that if that person wishes to disclose more details. So, for example, with me, I am genderqueer. Um, queer obviously being a term that has been reclaimed mm. by the LGBTQ plus community over many years um, from a, a word which enacted structural violence as a slur to one that actually says my identity is outside of the norm uh, and that is all I need to tell you. Um, and we can get more into queerness as a transitive verb later if we need to, but let's not. Um, when I talk about being genderqueer, what that means for me 
is that I have experienced gender dysphoria, which is a disconnect between my gender identity, which is situated within my psychology, and the way that my body is socially perceived based on gendered norms and gendered ideals. Um, so what that specifically means in terms of my personal experience is that I am assigned female at birth. Um, so, I, you know, they said it's a girl when I was born uh, and all the assumptions that come with that. Um, but I have experienced this dysphoria since a very young age, I'd say maybe seven. Uh, so sometimes I will present in a more masculine way. I will uh, bind my chest. I will wear more stereotypically masculine clothes. The idea for me is that my gender is queer. It doesn't fit into male or female and it never will. Um, and it's a nice broad kind of definition because then it includes people of many different experiences. Um, and so it's important to consider gender not as two categories and not even as a sliding scale between maleness and femaleness because that implies that masculinity and femininity are inherently juxtaposed, uh, which isn't the case at yeah. all. Um, but it's better to imagine it as a spectrum. And the benefit of that spectrum is that it is uh, culturally conscientious and culturally sensitive as well, because the gender binary is predominantly a colonial export, um, a post-colonial relic, um, which comes from white Western culture that didn't exist in many communities around the world uh, until colonialism. And so when we are considering gender as being more spectral like this, what we are doing is we are acknowledging how gender is not synonymous with sex in other communities around the world. Because that's the problem is that often people say, well, how can you be all of these genders when there's only two sexes? And there's not actually only two sexes. That in itself is also uh, a spectrum biologically. But let's not get too far into that. Yeah. And this matters because actually what we have are people in our lives who are coming through this new idea of micro communities uh, mm. or swarms of communities, sorry, that's my own word, I just to make my sense of it in my own head. They're going to be working with us in our families, around us, they're going to be all over the place. And actually it's really key that we grasp onto the opportunity to allow those, these people to be themselves and actually sort of begin to suspend this slightly archaic judgment because actually, surely the thing is just to create a space where people can work, where people can live, where people can do their best thing, really. Is, is that what we're, is that really where we're trying to get to, would you say? Uh, yes, um, it's the idea of, um, <laughs> it's, it's none of anybody's business, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if it's not making your life any worse, it's none of your business. And it's also important to acknowledge that these aren't new identities. Um, it's more that the language has developed for us to explain these identities in a way that we couldn't 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so these communities have always existed. Trans people have always existed. Um, gender and sexuality have always been these complex subjective terms that are an interplay between one's individual psyche, their social relationships, um, broader societal norms, cultural practices, religion. Um, and so what it's about saying is you don't have to be from my culture, you don't have to be from my community, um, you are allowed to be who you are and you don't have to conform. 
there is this issue, I think, uh, kind of this positivism in the West where we like to say, right, you fit in this box because you behave in this particular way and you fit in this box because you behave in this particular way. And it's not universally practiced, you know, nor is it particularly beneficial to any community. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what we're saying is that a lot of this is actually irrelevant to one's day-to-day life. Um, yeah. By and to large, yours. as somebody... Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I am somebody who identifies under the trans umbrella because I don't identify with my assigned gender at birth. Mm. And I cannot think of a single incident in my life where I have inconvenienced anybody else with my gender identity, (laughs) nor has it made me any less professional with the work that I do. Yes. And so and so. If we're recruiting people, if we're bringing this, um, these new ideas into the workplace, if we're bringing um, people with um, different ways of thinking about the world into the workplace, how, how, do we, how do we change to get the best out of them? How do we, I mean, how do we reach out to do that diplomatic thing? I think we have to have particular safeguarding and protection practices and policies in place as well. Um, (laughs) I think about uh, previous roles that I've had where um, I have not come out about my gender identity at work because of a lack of sensitivity surrounding the matter um, and a belief that people like me didn't exist as well. Um, You know, there is, I think there is a, a need to have open dialogues um, surrounding these kinds of subjects, have sensitivity training so that people are more aware because at the end of the day, there is still this very exclusionary rhetoric surrounding gender and sexuality that implies that being uh, heterosexual and cisgender, which is identifying with your assigned gender at birth, uh, is the norm. Um, And uh, common is not the same as normal, you know? Majority. amongst maybe your generation uh, it's funny I, I what are you say saying <laughs> <laughs> well you know queerness I, I you do you know you do choose particular circles that you move in but I look back at my friends in high school who were just the people that were in my class and I would say at least half maybe more of those individuals are non-cisgender or non-heterosexual mm-hmm. um, because there is this ability to come out and be open about it uh, at a younger age now compared to many individuals who are having to come out at later ages because their generation didn't have the same opportunities. Um, so yeah, there is this kind of need to have practices, safeguarding and sensitivity training involved, um, inclusive spaces as well. Um, I am continually frustrated whenever I leave my comfortable East London bubble and I stumble across gendered bathrooms, um, which are not an inclusive practice. Um, there has often been this kind of discussion around how keeping women safe yeah. by having gendered bathrooms, uh, but nobody has ever been protected from being assaulted because a man said, oh, I can't go into that bathroom because it's a woman's bathroom. If somebody's going to go into a bathroom to assault a woman, they won't care about the sign on the door. Mm. Um, and, you know, gender inclusive, you know, unisex bathrooms are in- incredibly beneficial because obviously there are individuals with you know many different needs i know there's a problem with the fact that uh, most men's bathrooms don't have 
um, sanitary disposal bins um, for menstrual products. So individuals, so like uh, trans men who are menstruating or intersex individuals um, uh, don't have an opportunity to use those kinds of facilities, not to mention that that's also ableist because there are individuals with medical conditions that need yeah. utilities like that. Um, so having spaces like, like unisex bathrooms, um, that's incredibly beneficial in a workplace. Um, and that is the kind of thing that will encourage uh, queer identifying gender and sexuality variant individuals to want to work somewhere because that awareness of our very personal needs implies that we are more safe in these spaces than we might be in other organizations and, and businesses where, um, where our identity is a debate, um, which obviously is, is quite a dehumanizing matter at the best of times and very distracting when you're working. So. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's the key, isn't it? It's that some people are unnecessarily absorbed by this. And actually what you're saying is we don't really need to be that bothered. We just need a place where we can come to work and do what we want to do really. And often that's working in a, in a, um, in an organization. It can be ancient, modern, traditional, groovy, funky, or none of those things above. You just want to be able to just do your thing without necessarily being bothered by the whole area. I think it's more, there's something else in the world that's going on here, isn't there? Around this sort of subject area. Fascinating. Now, you have a story which we haven't touched on, which is traveling all over the world, doing all sorts of weird stuff. And um, I think the best thing for people to do is, because I know you, I know already that we've already had a, a huge long conversation, thoroughly enjoyed that. And I was, I went to, I spent 20 minutes outside of the, the shop waiting to go in because we, we were too busy chatting outside of it. So I couldn't get in there. Um, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? Uh, so my brand for my podcast accompanying articles and freelance academic work is slash queer, which is S-L-A-S-H queer. You can find me at slash queer dot com. Uh, I'm also on social media. So Instagram, Twitter and Facebook under the at slash queer handle. Um, the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple podcasts and Castbox. If you just search the word queer, I will come up. Um, you can also contact me directly if you have questions at slash queer at outlook.com. Brilliant. It's like you've done that before. <laughs> Shocking that, Russell. Brilliant. Um, I, mean, I mean, I don't know where to go with all this. You've, you've raised so many brilliant questions in my own mind. And, um, but you've also given us some really useful starting points. I love the idea of I mean, simple things like inclusive spaces, about not being so bothered about it, about the idea of democracy, uh, diplomacy. I love some of the things you said there. I think there's a real opportunity for um, people just to think about, actually, none of this really matters. What really matters in a funny sort of world is just creating an environment where people can just do their best work. And, and when, when wasn't that just a great idea? So actually, let's, let's just focus more on that and less on worrying about gender and sexuality and you know all the things we're troubled with so it's interesting yes. to hear someone from a completely different perspective so thank you georgie it's been absolutely brilliant thank you very much for the time russell i really appreciate the platform superb you take care hi everybody i hope you found that episode useful and interesting feedback is always welcomed and if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on itunes or stitcher that would be amazing 
If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.